chapter two. And I'm glad that Gary is back with us after. I don't know. Some of you may not know he's been not well and uh, had to pass a kidney stone. And so I'm glad he's survived that and he's back with us. And and I appreciate not only his singing, his uh, leading us in singing. I appreciate your participation. I don't know about where you were sitting, but where I was sitting, this this group here is doing well. You encouraged me in your singing, and I hope the rest of you were encouraged. I know the Lord is pleased with your singing when you participate that way. In our last lesson, as we looked at uh, the book of First John, we saw a stark contrast between the truth and the lie. If you weren't with us, you can read the previous verses in chapter 2 and you'll begin to see that. And John begins his letter by stating the truth, not a truth, but the truth. And it's a truth of all truths. So when we come to this in first John and we look at this truth, when you see that word truth, he is probably talking about chapter one, verses one through three, where he basically says this or he says this. God became a man. I saw him with my own eyes. I touched him. I talked to him. I handled him. God became a man. He lived among us. That is the foundational truth. We call that in his incarnation the theology, his incarnation, his life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, all stem from this truth is foundational, is fundamental. And as I said last week, it cannot be compromised. We cannot compromise this truth. Any type of Christianity that's not firmly rooted in this belief is a counterfeit Christianity. It's uh, devoid of substance. Uh, any attempt to make this impossible truth, and it is impossible. Think about this. The supernatural became natural. The spiritual became material. God became flesh. And if we try and change that to tweak it for non-believers, uh, explaining it away a little bit, making it a myth, something less than a historical, accurate statement, fact. John says that's the lie. Anyone who states that is a liar. And the consequence of believing the lie that Jesus was not God means you have no foundation. There's no foundation in your life. There's no security. There's no direction. We'd be left to our own devices. And I've sp spoke to people who say, I would like to be left to my own devices. And let them go down that road for a while. And often they come saying, help. <laughs> my own devices are not that, not that good after all. The consequence of believing the truth that Jesus was God sums up. John sums this up. He says, this is eternal life. It's eternal life. And that means more than I'm just going to heaven when I die. When I was young, in my mind, eternal life meant when I die, I go to heaven. But what about now? Eternal life, John sums it up in, his, in chapter 17. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To know, to continue to know, to come to know, to build a, a, a relationship with him. That's eternal life. It begins now. And it continues throughout eternity. I wonder, I thought this week as I read this passage, I wonder if we will ever truly know God. Is, that, is, it, is it going to be possible 
in our redeemed and our we are redeemed in our glorified state to know God? Or is it going to be an ongoing growth all through eternity? I suspect so. I don't I don't know if I can prove that biblically, but we'll find out one day, won't we? We'll go up there and we'll find out. We're going to a new section here. I think I think it's a new section. John is hard to outline. Any of you who want to read First John and outline outline it for me, please hand in your outline because it's a difficult book to outline. Uh, I think a new section begins here and goes through chapter three, verse ten. And I'm I'm just giving this so you can kind of get a, a grasp of what we're doing. And it's outlined, I think, like this. This is how I, I outlined it. Can we speak? Outlined it. Chapter two, the, the verses we're going to cover today are called what I'm calling transitional verses. They tie the previous section with the future section that we're going into. They talk about this. It ties this fundamental teaching that Jesus is the Christ and everything that means to what he's going to talk about, about being in him, remaining in him. And then he's going to show a contrast between living righteously and living sinfully. It's very black and white. When you read it, you're going to see this contrast. And as you compare your life to this black and white contrast, most Christians look at that and say, I haven't I'm not there yet. I wonder (laughs) I wonder what my condition is. He's going to have this very black and white contrast. And we'll we'll deal with that as we come to it. He introduces the thought of living righteously in verse twenty nine. We're going to look at that today. And then before he continues looking at this contrast, he takes a break. Verses one through three is a parenthesis. He, he introduces this righteousness and then his mind explodes for three verses. And if you read chapter two, verse twenty nine and skip to chapter three, verse four, you'll see the thought just keeps going there. So chapter three, verse one through three, which I can't wait to get to, is going to be a wonderful three verses here. He says, oh, see what manner of love the father has lavished on us. Boy, that's going to be wonderful when we get there, which will be next week, Lord willing. But in this three verses, I summed it up in in three. It might be my three, my my outline who we are. Verse one. And he says here, this is a fact. This is who you are in verse one. Then in verse two, he says what you will be. And this is God's promise. And then verse three, he says, and this is what you're going, what you strive to be. This is your work. This is your labor. This is what you're working on in the in that third verse. And so we might be able to cover all three of those next time. The fact of who we are, the promise of who we will be and the thing that we're currently striving to be. We're going to deal, as I said, with this transitional section, verse 28 and 29. And as I've shared with you before, John's writing is hard to is not linear. It's not outline. It's hard to outline. It's circular. He's he'll make a statement. He'll expand on it and he'll expand on that. And we'll see a little bit more of that today. And so we have to look back and, re, and keep remembering what he has what he has said so we can see what he's expanding on. One of the purposes, you know, this if you've been here more than twice, hopefully, you know, this the purposes of John's writing. He has three purposes that he stated. And his first one is that you may have what? All of, yeah, that's right. Someone said it. Joy. That you may have joy to the full. Filled up with joy. 
And so when I come to difficult passages through First John, I ask myself three questions because I'm dealing with the purpose of John's writing here. I, I ask the question, does this bring me joy? How does this this passage that he is this what John is sharing here? How does that bring me joy or how does this help me not to sin? The second purpose is chapter two, verse one. I write this so that you will not sin. So as I read a passage that I'm struggling with, I say, well, how does this help me not to sin? And the third one is our assurance. How does this help me be assured I have eternal life? Chapter five, verse 13, where he says, I write this so that you will know you have eternal life. And as I think about these things, as I study through first John, I, I continually reminded that life sometimes is not pleasant. It's full of sickness. It's full of trials. It's full of problems. And if you go back to chapter 1, it says it's full of sin, even for Christians. Even Christians struggle with sin. And so the question I have is, how can I have joy in the middle of all this? All this struggle and strife and death and Problems and aches and pains and and the, the sins that I'm struggling with and I'm trying to grow up and I'm not doing very well. How can I have joy in the midst of all this? It's beyond the natural. It's supernatural. It can only be centered. It can only happen if we center our lives in our maker, what he's done for us and not ourselves. If I center my life in myself. When I am sick, when my life, when I, when I am physically sick, my life is sick. When I'm not thinking right, I, my whole life begins to fall apart. But if I'm center, centered in God, when I'm sick, God stays constant. He stays the same. My joy is in Him, not my problem. Because I'm always going to have problems. And so my joy is not rooted in me, it's in joy, my joy is rooted in him and what he has done for me. I know my life is eternal. And so when I see my life ending, as I see my life advancing toward an end, my physical life, I know life is really eternal. I can have joy because it goes beyond this life. The quality of life, the quantity of life goes beyond my present trials and temptations. This joy is rooted John said in verse three of chapter one, in my fellowship with God, my relationship with God and confirmed with my relationship with you. We have fellowship with God and we have fellowship with one another. And so it becomes paramount that we maintain that fellowship with God and with each other. And there's some do's and don'ts. There's some things we're supposed to do and not do. And John will keep going to these. And then every time so far that John says, don't do this or do do this, he takes you back to who? I've said it a dozen times, God. He keeps bringing you back to God and says, I know this is what you don't do, but it's not centered in what you don't do. It's centered in God and because it's centered in God. Therefore, you don't do these things. Therefore, you do do certain things. This walking in the light is God centered Living, It's recognizing constantly the blood of Jesus, his son, continually purifies me of all sin. It's an ongoing forgiveness. 
And so I keep myself focused and rooted in his ongoing forgiveness and not necessarily how well I'm doing right now, because it's all about him and not all about me. And so he goes on and says, so we treasure his commands. Some of your translations say we keep his commands, we obey his commands. But the word there means treasure. We we love his commands. And the reason we do is because they give us direction in life. They tell us which way to go. He commands us to to have life. And he says, and this is how you have life. This is what you are to do. This is what you are not to do. This is how life is meant to be lived. And so John will expand this later on in chapter five. And we will get there, Lord willing. Verse three, he says, and his commands are not burdensome. You know, all the things you are supposed to do and all the things you are not supposed to do. That's not a burden. And the reason is because we know that this, there's life in these things. He's giving us direction. He's not just giving us arbitrary rules and say, do this and don't do this because that's what I want you to do. And so we just obey these arbitrary rules that spoil our fun and limit us. God gives us commands that lifts us up. It guides us like a road map. Go down this direction. Don't go this direction. Make sure your road map's good, by the way. Tell you a quick, quick story. Those, what are they called? Those phones. Um, smartphones. They aren't so smart sometimes. I typed in the other day. With, I was with Julia out in a little bit west of here, east of here. And I typed in, uh, well, I can't remember, Little River Canyon. Little River Canyon. And it said, take a right to do this, do this. And suddenly, we were in the middle of nowhere. I'm not kidding. In the middle on a dirt path. And I was and I was driving saying, I'm glad I got my truck. I went through a stream and kept going and kept going. And I turned to Julie after about four miles and said, are you afraid? (laughs) I'm a little concerned, she said. (laughs) If I had typed in Little River Canyon Falls, I would have been in better shape. But sometimes our roadmap takes us in the wrong direction. God's roadmap says, Go this way. Go this. Don't go that way. I went the wrong way on a road map. God tells us which way to go, what to do, how to live our lives. It's like an owner's manual. It helps us maintain our life to the full. If you want to live a full life, your choice is to do it your way or God's way. And God who created life says, do it my way. You will live a full life. It moves us away from a world-centered life that breaks down and tears us down. That's why he said, do not love the world. Or anything in the world. That kind of love kills. That kind of love directs us away from God. God's kind of love, God's kind of direction brings us to him and brings us to life. And so we're going to look today at two things. We're going to look at our attitude in him and our action in him. Each verse talks about each one of those. Let's read verse 28 where he says, And now, dear children, continue in him. So that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. He begins this. He's going to tell us what kind of attitude we're supposed to have. And he begins this by saying, dear children. Seven times he uses this word, dear children. And I spent a lot of time on this in chapter two, verse one, where it first is introduced. But on the only chapter he doesn't use this word is in the first chapter. Twice. Three times in the, in the second chapter, twice in the third, and once in the fourth, and once in the fifth. And it's this 
word, this diminutive word is what it's called, that he uses over and over, and it's not a preacher word. I, I kind of, I'm, I get irritated at preachers, including myself. But I get irritated when we're called things that I think, I wonder if he really means that. I don't mind being called brother, all right? But when I'm called brother, because you forget my name, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, I know I'm your, you know, but do you know my name? Don't you, wouldn't you rather be called Jim? No, I mean Paul. <laughs> Got you. You see, when you feel when you, you're called by your name, you like that rather than being called, hey, brother, you know, just this. This is not that kind of word. And yet you read through it and you hear dear children, dear children. You think, ah, it's just a preacher, an old man. But it's not that at all. It actually is a word that fathers and mothers and nursery keepers use of their kids, their ch- the children, the toddlers around them. That's why I have my grandkids up there. This is the words that we use about our, our little children. And it's hard to translate in English. Maybe you can come up with better ones, but it's something like, we don't say this, but little lambkin or sweet pea, maybe. I've heard that some. Or even kiddo would be a loose translation. It's not really accurate. But it's like this. Instead of saying Timothy, it's saying Timmy. Instead of saying Raphael, it's Ralphie coming down the aisle. Perfect timing. I didn't do that on purpose. You did. It's not saying Jennifer. It's saying Jenny. It's not Anne. It's Annie. And you know there has to be a relationship because if I call you, you know, my grandchild, he's not, he's up there. No, he's not up there. Michael. We call him Mikey. All right. And so when you're, when that word is used, it's like there's a relationship there. There's something close. And so John has been saying some really black and white statements here. He's he just finished saying, and that person is a the liar. That's strong words. And so it's easy to hear harshness in that. And if it wasn't for this word scattered throughout the whole letter, we could take that. We could take this book and really pound people with it. We could be harsh. We could be a spiritual policeman, a taskmaster. Smack people with these verses really hard. And John, I think, uses this over and over to remind him when I have to say hard things. I'm tender here. Love is coming here. I'm concerned about you. I care for you. I'm gentle with you. I love you. And so when I have to say some hard things, you're my little Timmy. You're my little Mikey. You're my little Jimmy. All right. And he does that over and over throughout this book to remind you, even though I have to say some hard things, you're precious to me. You're precious to God. So, dear Tommy, dear Mia, he says, continue in him. And I shared last week, 24 times he uses this word. It's translated remain sometimes. It's translated abide. It's your home. We don't use it too often I went to my abode. That's an old English way of saying it. But you, you're familiar. You've read some books. Some of you. And you know that my abode is my home. It's where you settle down. It's your life. You're at home with Christ, he says. 
And it's not a static relationship. It's not just sitting around the house hoping for salvation to come one day, hoping for the best. But it's a relationship in which you enjoy, you grow, you flourish. It means you mature in a deepening relationship. And so I ask, how do you feel about home? I counsel enough people to know that some of you go home and you don't want to go home. It's not it's not pleasant. And so if that's your personal experience, I want you to move away from that for a minute, because the home that he's talking about is a place you want to be. It's a place that you're comfortable. It's warm. It's inviting. You like to go home. You can't wait to go home. And he says, so maintain your home. Be at home in Christ. And we're never told, we're never commanded to be in Christ. Commanded to be in Christ. That's a fact. When you become a Christian, those people who were put up on the screen a little while ago, when they were baptized, the Bible says they were baptized what? In, in, we're not awake. In to Christ. Thank you. All right. I just want to, I know it's warm in here. I want you to be awake. All right, you're baptized into Christ. That's where you are when you were when you put your faith in him and you were immersed into him. You were baptized into Christ. That's a fact. That's what God has done for us. And so he says, now this is what we do. Remain there. Make your home there. Abide there. And then he gives you some motivation so that when he appears and that word there means so that when he is made visible. The Holy Spirit has placed Christ in us and us in Christ. Christ is with us right now. We are in the presence of Christ, not because you walked into a building, but when you walk out of this building as a Christian, you're in the presence of Christ all the time. But he's not visible. You don't see him. God is seen through his people. That's how God is seen right now. But one day. Revelation 1 verse 7 says, every eye will see him. He will be made visible. And anyone who's doubting it, they won't doubt it anymore. He will be visible. And so he speaks to our purpose there here. He says, so continue in him because he's going to appear. He's going to come back. He's going to be made visible. Stay at home in him. So when he returns, you have an attitude. How do you think right now, if God came right now, do you have a fearful thought or do you have a joyful thought? I think if you are a Christian and you are fearful at his return, something's not right. Either something's wrong with your life. That needs to be corrected or something's wrong with your thinking. Probably that a preacher fed you years ago. Something's wrong. This is where we discover the attitude that we're supposed to have. This is what walking in the light means. This is the anticipation that we're supposed to have that the Lord's coming. And the word here is what? The next word. Confidence. Okay, you don't believe me. I'm going to read it. So that when he appears, we may be confident and not ashamed. It's a marvelous word. 
It's talking about your attitude at the Lord's coming. It's, it's translated a whole I went through a bunch of translations. Listen to this, these translations. I'm going to put them on the screen here. Boldness, an open manner, no fear, no need to hide, full courage, have an open countenance, perfect confidence. Don't have a problem with me. Have a problem with John. Because that's what he says. He says, when he comes, when he appears, we may have confidence. We may have an open manner. The word literally means all speech. It means speaking up. It means being talkative, freedom of speech. When he comes, we'll, we'll, we'll want to say something to him. We'll have something to say. The opposite is shy, insecure, fearful. So when you think of the Lord coming, are you like, oh, what is he going to do? Are you confident, talkative, want to say something to him? Elliot once told me about meeting President Carter. He's not here today. Elliot's not President Carter, is neither. <laughs> but he said he was going down, he was in a line, and President Carter was going down, shaking the you know, hands, and he was going to say something to President Carter. And as soon as he shook his hand, this was when he was actually the president. When he shook his hand, he said, there, just, there were no words. He said, I just clammed up. I couldn't say anything. And that's how we think of the Lord coming. He's like, ooh, there's nothing to say. You know, fearful. What's going to happen? That's not what John says here. He says we're going to be confident that you may be confident. And we're not talking about overconfidence. We're not talking about any kind of bravado. We're not talking about cockiness here. Don't don't read into the to the passage here. But he says our confidence is based in the knowledge of my dependency on him. I know my sins are washed away. I know I'm being purified. Uh, chapter one, verse seven, because of his sacrifice, I know I have an advocate with the father. Chapter two, verse one, he speaks on my behalf. Now he continues to speak on my behalf. And so now I can speak to him. And if we miss it, guess what John does? How does John do this? He expands. He expands. Look at uh, chapter three, verse 21. I'm going to read these and can't wait till I get to them. Dear heart, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God, that's going to be a wonderful passage when we get to that one. Chapter four, verse 17. Um, one of my favorite in this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment, because in this world we are like him. And then in chapter five, verse 14, just in case you missed it, he says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that we ask anything according to his will. He hears us. And I know those, all those passages bring up, well, what does he mean by that? We're going to find out when we get there. But over and over, he says, we can have confidence before Christ. We're unashamed. That's the opposite. He's given us the opposite there. It literally means be ashamed from him. And it has this idea we're hiding from him. You know, we're hiding, hiding away. We're shirking away from him. We're moving away from him. And he says, those who have their home in Christ... Those who are settled down in him, those who are living in him, those who are growing in grace have no reason to be ashamed when he arrives to take you back home. What makes us have this confidence? How can you have this confidence? If you don't have it, how can you have this confidence instead of being ashamed? It's an action, something we do. The next verse. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Our action is based on his action. 
Our work is an extension of his work. Our life is based in his life. We're going to say it over and over because John says it over and over. He says, what you do has nothing to do with your own personal power, and your own personal righteousness. It has to do with what he has done. And so when he begins to talk about things you do, he, he, he anchors you right back into Jesus because of his righteousness. We have to be God focused, Christ focused. If you know, he says, know in your mind is what this word means. Absolute knowledge. If you have this information in your mind, then you know, then you then you know, you know what he is righteous. He is righteous. Our faith is built on his righteousness. And so, again, we're brought back to his righteousness, his perfection. He's the perfect one. He's the sinless one. And our salvation stems from this over and over. John has said and Paul says in every letter, every book in the Bible says it. John's already called him the righteous one, chapter two and verse one. And he tied that to his atoning sacrifices, his his propitious sacrifice. Chapter two, verse one, he says, don't sin. I'm writing this so that you will not sin. But when you do, when you do, you have one who speaks on your your behalf. Jesus, the righteous one, he's the righteous one. That's why he can speak on your behalf. That's why he sacrificed himself for us. He appeased this appeasing, this propitiation took care of sin in the proper way. Sin had to be punished. Your sin had to be punished. So Jesus took the punishment for you. That's what the atoning sacrifice means. And so don't sin. But when you do, it's been taken care of. And he says, you know, that's Jesus. You know, he's righteous. You know that no person could accuse him of sin. He was sinless, righteous one. And since you know this, then what's your personal experience when you're joined in his righteousness? You have to think for a minute. You have to think about your life. What's your righteousness about? This is translated here. Everyone does what is right. Doing righteousness someplace places say are practicing righteousness. Doing what is right, listen, does not mean never sinning. It doesn't mean making excuses for sins either. It does not mean earning your salvation by what you do. But it doesn't mean you don't do anything in response to Jesus' sacrifice. Doing righteousness means maturing in Christ. It means not sinning. It means growing and doing the right things. All in a response to his righteousness. Because he is righteous, I learn how to be righteous. There's a change in behavior when there's a change in relationship. If you've changed your relationship from the world to Christ, your behavior is going to change. And probably not to the degree that you want it to. If I were to ask you to hold your hand up and say, who here is satisfied with their spiritual growth at this point in their life? I'm almost tempted to ask to really do it just to see. The oldest in the faith, I don't think, would raise their hands. All of us look at our lives and say, I wish I was I was doing better in that area. I wish I had grown more in that area. 
We want to be like Jack and the Beanstalk. You know the story? Got the beans? Mother saw it, whatever. You sold the cow for beans and threw them out the window. And the next morning, what? Good, you've read the story. There's a giant beanstalk. And that's how we want to grow spiritually. We want to be baptized into Christ. And the next day, we're just the, the spiritual giant that everyone just falls down before and says, you're, you're so marvelous. You know, that's what we want. We really want to grow in the Lord. But it's really like growth. When you plant those seeds, I have a, I have a silly little garden that I feed bugs with every summer. I plant a garden. And all the bugs come and eat my food. I'm just not that good of a gardener. But I love it. You know why I do it? Because I love to see things grow. I have a bunch of grass that grows, a bunch of weeds that grow, a bunch of everything that grows. But I plant it, and I look out there, and I wait, and I wait, and I wait. Some seeds take 10, 15 days before they start sprouting. And then it's just a little sprout, and then it grows, and it gets a little bigger. And you, you sit there, and if you sit there and watch it grow, it won't grow. You can never see it grow. If you sit there and watch it, you have to just come back a few days later, and it's a little bit bigger. And that's spiritual growth. You're growing in the Lord. Your righteousness is growing. You're learning how to do uh, things. This answers the question, how can I know I'm saved? Look at your behavior. Has there been progress? Has there been growth? Do you feel bad about doing badly? Do you feel bad about doing badly? Yes, growth. You're growing. Do, re, do you rejoice in your progress? That's how we can know if we're righteous. And then he talks about our relationship. He says you're born of him or born of God. And he's not saying here that those people who do nice things are children of God. There's a lot of nice people in the world that aren't children of God. Not nice people are children of God, but righteous people are children of God. Our righteousness has been given to us through our faith in Christ. It's been imputed to us, as Paul says. When we placed our faith in him, when we were immersed in him, God gave us his righteousness. That's where our righteousness comes from. And he's saying those who are born of God begin to resemble God. They're concerned. They care and attempt to do the right thing. No longer is it their goal to serve themselves and live for themselves, but to live for God. Even when you're living for yourself, you know that truth is true, don't you? Those of you who are Christians, when you're living for yourself and you realize you're living for yourself, how does that make you feel? Terrible, selfish, awful, self-centered, all those things. And so that's just an evidence that I'm in Christ because I know that's wrong and I need to turn away from that. And so life is a continual adjustment. As we adjust back and say, you know, I need to live more like Christ. I need to be more like God. I need to take on his characteristics. Our actions are, are come out of that relationship of being born again. We have the family characteristics of God. We look like God. We begin to look like him. We're born of him. We have his DNA because he gave it to us. We imitate God. Ephesians chapter 5. In fact, we get that word, born of him, we get our English word, genes and genetics, from that. That's what I mean. We, are, we have the very genes of God, spiritually. And so ask yourself, do I see a family resemblance here? Is my righteous behavior beginning to imitate God's righteousness? 
Am I growing in Christ as I look to Christ and God? Is there some, not exactly, I won't look exactly like him, but am I beginning to take on those characteristics? John speaks to us in the most tenderest of tones. Dear child, dear sweet one, dear Tommy, dear Annie. And then he firmly and loves speaks to us. And he says, where's your focus? Where's your focus? It has to be in him. Dear sweet one, remain in him. Abide in him. Make your home in him. So let me ask you, if I came to your home today, would you be ashamed? I'm talking about your little home. Would you say, oh, we can't have anyone over today. I'm the stuff's all over the place. The place is a mess. You know what I'm saying? All right. How's your spiritual home? What needs to be cleaned up? Something needs to be cleaned up in your home? What's out of place that needs to be put back into place? What's the condition? How's my housekeeping going right now? What relationships do I need to cultivate? What relationships do I need to get rid of? For some of us, there's some relationships we just need to get rid of. We need to lay them aside right now. Clean up our home. Let me get personal. What's your browser history on your computer say? Hmm? Mm-mm. I just got preaching, didn't I? <laughs> Gary, come help me. <laughs> that tells you where your mind's gone, gone, where your eyes are. Need to do some erasing there and then staying off of it. That's what it means by remaining in him. I look at my life and I say, what needs to be straightened up here? What needs to be cleaned up? And it's not just the big sins. You know, a lot of times we preachers are concerned about what I called earlier the felony sins. Adultery, fornication, drug use, drunkenness. You know, those are the big ones. Yeah, Jesus died for those, but he also died for the misdemeanors, the ones we put up with. Anger, jealousy, worry, gluttony, envy, covetousness, selfishness, whatever. Keep going. Jesus died for the felony sins, and he died for the misdemeanor sins. You know why? Because the misdemeanor sins put you in hell just as quick as the felony ones. And so we now have the spirit, the power in us, the power of the spirit in us. We have the power to put off and clean up things. That's why Paul says, get rid of this. And he lists them. We'll go to Colossians chapter 3. And he'll say, get rid of all these things. Put off all those things. And that's not enough, but now put on some things. Patience and compassion, gentleness, forgiveness. That's remaining in him. That's living in him. I'm getting rid of these things I know I need to get rid of. Yeah, sure, I'm getting rid of those, but I'm putting on these things too. I'm becoming more like him. And I know every single Christian here looks at that and says, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. And I think when you have that attitude, that's what I want to be, that's what I want to do. Is evidence that you're in Christ. The more we grasp and understand who Christ is, the more we understand what he's done for us, how he's purified us, the more we'll live for him and we'll do righteousness. We'll do the right thing. We'll imitate him. 
Because we see that's the best way to live. That's how I want to live. We'll walk as Jesus walked because we love him. Let me read you a paraphrase. In the context, I'm going to back up two verses so we can see what he's saying here. He says, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to cause you to wander all over the place. Missing the point of life, direction in life, life himself. As for you, the ointment, the good news of God become man that you receive from him is fully anchored in you. There's nothing to add to that. There's nothing further that someone can teach you or any deeper knowledge to obtain. And springing from this solid foundational truth comes every other teaching you need to learn. This is real, not something made up. So since you've learned your lesson, stick to that teaching. Now, dear special ones, since this is the case, keep yourself continually anchored in his life. Your home is in him. So when one day the door swings open and there he is, you will welcome him with a broad smile of confidence. There will be no shirking or hiding or any type of cover up, embarrassed at his homecoming. And since you know as an absolute fact who he is, righteous, you know through experience that all those whose habit and direction in life is do what is right are born of him. So go forth, do what is right, find out what is right and do what's good. And if you're outside of Christ, man, the hope's right here in Christ. We welcome the six this past weekend who 